Financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year. And then the inflation data came out, higher than expected. Friends, this isn't going away. It can't. The U.S. is $34 trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher. So you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation, and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They'll help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold, and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. Text STRANGE to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation with gold. Text STRANGE to 989898 now. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, a special look at the JFK assassination with researcher author James D. Eugenio. I don't think it's a coincidence that some of these Cubans ended up being in Dallas that day. All right, and one of them, Bernardo de Torres, was disguised as a reporter and reportedly had pictures of Kennedy's assassination in a safe deposit box that Life magazine wanted to pay him for, but he wouldn't give them to him. Or that Sergio Arcacha Smith had diagrams of the sewer system under Dealey Plaza. Or David Phillips, who recruited a lot of these Cubans on his deathbed, finally admitted to his brother that he was in Dallas that day. This podcast is supported by Paranormal Contractors, a division of crime and trauma scene cleaners. If you have unwanted paranormal activity in your home or business, you need to call Paranormal Contractors, 1-866-724-0800, 1-866-724-0800. Check out their YouTube channel, Paranormal Contractors, for things that go bump in the night. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Wednesday. 
We've been drilling down on JFK pretty hard the last week or so, and we're going to keep that going. This episode is a little beefier than most. Tomorrow, of course, will be the 55th anniversary of the public execution of the 35th president in Dallas. So on this episode, James DiEugenio will focus on what was happening in the United States before JFK took office in terms of foreign policy in Southeast Asia and Cuba, of course. Then in the second half, we'll focus on the supposed lone gunman who was Lee Harvey Oswald. I think you'll be stunned by some of the things we're about to learn about Oswald. I've also decided that I'm going to continue with this JFK series a little bit longer. This coming Friday, we'll continue examining Oswald. Jim DiEugenio is one of the deans of JFK assassination research. He's the author of Destiny Betrayed, about the Garrison investigation of the Kennedy assassination, first published in 1992, with a second, greatly revised edition issued in 2012. And he's also the author of Reclaiming Parkland, published in 2013 and reissued in expanded form in 2016, which offers a detailed critical examination of the Warren Commission's evidence and conclusions, along with an analysis of the CIA's influence in Hollywood. He's also the co-author and editor of The Assassinations, Probe Magazine on JFK, MLK, RFK, and Malcolm X. He co-edited Probe Magazine from 1993 to 2000 and was a guest commentator on the anniversary issue of the film JFK, re-released by Warner Brothers in 2013. He has an MA in Contemporary American History from California State University, Northridge, and is also a specialist in the history and theory of cinema and has written numerous film reviews. Jim, how are you? Fine. You've really uncovered through the declassification process. Maybe let's start there. Uh, you know, why, why, um, you know, revisit this material 20 years later? There's this declassification process you've been involved with. It's uncovered a lot of documents, new documents. Tell me about that. Well, my first version of this book came out, like you said, over 20 years ago. And this was before the creation of the ARB, which is the Assassinations Record Review Board, which went to work in around 1994 and stayed at work for about four years declassifying two million pages of new documents on the Kennedy case. Now, if you know anything about this case, previously, before the ARB, there were two million pages of documents at the National Archives. So they had to make a whole new archive at the University of Maryland called National Archives 2 to put in all these new documents. All right? And in my opinion, in my opinion, they kind of revolutionized the subject matter that I had chosen to write about. Okay? And so I felt like my first book was kind of an okay effort, but it was really kind of, how to say this, it was really kind of um, not current. It was really too traditional in its, in its repetition of facts because all the new facts that had now been declassified by the ARB kind of, in my opinion, changed the calculus of the whole Kennedy assassination, especially the aspect that I was looking at, which was what happened in New Orleans uh, with Oswald 
in the summer of 1963, and what happened to the investigation of Jim Garrison, which started in 1966, and then the result of what happened to him, you know, uh, in the years 69 through 73, and what happened to the House Select Committee on Assassinations. And then the last part of the book is about the reversal of JFK's foreign policy forays by Lyndon Johnson. And I, I like I wrote in the, this book could never have been written without the ARB. And in my opinion, in, in my honest opinion, and I've said this more than once, there's no point in writing another book on the Kennedy assassination if you don't use these new documents. There really isn't. Right. Because right. it's sort of like night and day, you know, before and after. James so Eugenio. I, and you're at, you're exactly right, by the way. You know, it's not correct to call it a second edition. No. It's it's actually a 90% rewritten volume. Okay? It's actually really another book, I would say. James Eugenio, Destiny Betrayed, JFK Cuba, and the Garrison Case. This is part one of a, of a, a second, a two-parter. And, uh, Jim, I think you're going to come back next week. We're going to do another hour. So what I thought we could do is tonight is is focus on um, we really need to set the stage in terms of the the climate the foreign policy climate we have to back up uh before kennedy even you know was a senator we have to back up to the end of the second world war talk about the climate the the uh, the emergence of the united states as a superpower after britain sort of you know they're basically bust after the second world war so they've got to hand this over to the, the, this mantle over to the united states then we see the emergence of this, you know, national security state, the, uh, the, the evolution of the CIA. We'll get into that. And then we'll see, you know, where Kennedy finds himself, uh, when he assumes office and how ultimately, as you point out in this book, Destiny Betrayed, how his foreign policy, his, his, his philosophies and how they change in terms of the Cold War, how those philosophies would mark him for death. So let's let's start really I guess the uh, the end of the second world war. Let's let's talk about the emergence of this national security state that the United States would become. All right. Um that's actually where I begin the book, all right? And what happened of course as you just mentioned is that after 1945 um with the all the expenditures that England had made on World War II, that the country was essentially sapped and bankrupted and could not even hold on to its colonial empire anymore. And so they sent an envoy to see Secretary of State George Marshall. And Marshall wasn't in, so they met with Dean Acheson, the acting secretary, and essentially told them this. You know, we're in no position, you know, to continue our leadership of the West, you know, now, so we're going to go ahead and make it clear that we expect you guys to go ahead and pick up the mantle, which, of course, is what happened. The United States now became um, the leader of the Western world, and against this new threat, which had been, which was perceived uh, even before the end of World War II, you know, which of course was the Soviet Union. All right, because when, once Roosevelt passed away. And Truman stepped in. Truman was not anywhere near the kind of sophisticate on the on foreign affairs that FDR was. 
So immediately what happened is that in a space of two years, the Cold War was essentially set in stone. And you had the mapping out of not just the United States versus the Soviet Union, but you had these alliances set in place, like NATO, you know, and on one side and the Warsaw Pact on the other, and you had economic alliances, you know, like Cinecom on, on, the, on the eastern side, you know, and the European free market on, on, on the western side, you know, and they were actually beginning to draw maps, of course, you know, you know, red for the curtains behind, the countries behind the so-called Iron Curtain and blue, the countries on the west of that. And so you eventually had the creation of the CIA as the capstone of this, all right? And, and once the CIA was put into place, there was this clause in the National Security Act that ended up being a Pandora's box that allowed the use of what came to be called covert action, you know, against whoever the perceived enemy was. Now, James, let's talk. We have to talk about the Dulles boys. We have uh, John Foster Dulles, of course, Secretary of State under uh, Eisenhower during the Eisenhower administration. His younger brother, Alan, uh, would become head of the CIA, the longest serving member of the CIA. Now, Dulles uh, was instrumental in recruiting key Nazis to, to basically uh, run the CIA, or is that an overstatement? Uh, well, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of glad you brought that up, because if you take a look at Alan Dulles' career, there's probably nobody, no one, who influenced the course of the Central Intelligence Agency more than he did. And it was him and John McCloy, who later served, both served in the Warren Commission, who recruited this Nazi named Reinhard Galen, um, who was captured at the end of World War II when Dulles was the head of station in Berlin. All right, He specifically made orders not to shoot Galen okay, because he wanted to incorporate his uh, spy apparatus into what he knew would eventually become the Central Intelligence Agency. Then when John McCloy became the commissioner, the high commissioner in West Germany, it was him who actually okayed this deal and made it a part of West German culture. And Reinhard Galen ended up making quite a lot of money off this. I think the figure was the CIA gave him an annual check of about $5 million a year. This is 1949. Yeah, that which was a hell of a lot of money back then. A lot of money now. Well, it's a lot of money now, but it was even more back then. I would be surprised if it was more like fifteen or twenty million dollars back then, you know. And so, this was the beginning, of course, if you ask me, and if you ask a lot of other people, of the fixing of intelligence against the Soviet Union to always make it appear that the Soviet threat was much larger and more serious. Than it always than it than it really was, which of course, and I explain in the book why Dulles would want this to happen, because not too many people understand his background as a longtime State Department officer, intelligence officer, but also he worked for this giant corporate law firm out of New York City, which his brother was the managing partner of, Sullivan and Cromwell. 
all right? And Sullivan and Cromwell was one of the largest corporate law firms in the world. It's, by the way, it still is, you know, in the world. And so they essentially served the interests of these, you know, like General Electric, you know, like the oil, the oil companies, okay, et cetera, things like that. And they did their bidding not only in America, but throughout the world. And I mentioned a part of, in the part of the book where Alan Dulles actually rigged these elections in South America for the Mellon family, the big banking family out of Pittsburgh, okay, to make sure that, that this new incoming government, which was a threat, would not go ahead and, you know, try and nationalize the, own, the ownership values that the Mellons had there. And, of course, once Alan Dulles then becomes director of the CIA, which is under his brother, he completely revolutionizes the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, which, of course, a lot of people had regrets about this, about what he did, including Harry Truman, which I, we'll get to that story later. So now the CIA under Alan Dulles became a, what's the best way to explain it, a kind of coup d'etat machine. Right, right? they're guns for hire for corporate America. Right, exactly. And, and, and the most, two most famous examples, of course, are what happened in Iran in 1953 and then in Guatemala in 1954, where in 1953, Dulles was serving the interests of the oil companies. In 1954, he was serving the interests of United Fruit, you know, in Guatemala. Right. right. So they're yeah, fighting these... The only ones, of course. He so... tried to uh, overthrow the government of Indonesia... In, in 1957, you know, he put a contract out on Patrice Lumumba in 1960 in the Congo. And, of course, it was Alan Dulles and his brother who made sure that once the French left Vietnam, that Ho Chi Minh would not be allowed to come in and take over and unify the country, which had been agreed upon at the Geneva Conference in 1954. They went ahead and made sure that the Central Intelligence Agency, under a famous covert operator, Edward Lansdale, found a substitute in Ngo Dinh Diem, and they propped him up in South Vietnam okay, as this so-called leader of South Vietnam. And this, of course, was the beginning of the second civil war in Vietnam after World War II. So, James, if I could just summarize here. Brothers. So, if I could just summarize here. So, is the CIA is running around, uh, engaged in all these covert operations, and, uh, you know, mo most people, Mr. and Mrs. Front Porch, thinking, God bless them, they're keeping America, f you know, safe from communists. But really, what they were doing was keeping the world safe for corporate America, and they're, and they're, they're multinationals. But, the, you know, this, this, so this Soviet threat, because, you know, the, it, it was being perceived, I guess, through the eyes of these former Nazis, I don't know if you can even call them former Nazis, that were, that were, you know, installed into this national security state apparatus in the United States. Obviously, they're going to perceive the threat. They're going to inflate, you know, the threat because Nazis, communists, don't get along. Uh, yeah, so right. is that a fair, a, a fair summation of what, of what yeah, we're talking I, about? I, I think there's a lot of accuracy in that. I think that a lot of the things that the Dulles brothers cloaked as being done in the name of anti-communism 
was really being done in the name of corporate American corporate hegemony in the third world. I mean, I don't think anybody could say that Mossadegh, the guy that was overthrown in Iran, right. was a communist. You know, and I don't think you could say that about our Benz either. You know, right? Or Allende. Or Allende. Yeah. Going I, further. I agree. Yeah. See, what these guys were were nationalists. Okay? They wanted to keep the resources of their countries more for their own people. But if that was going to happen, that meant that companies like United Fruit and like these oil companies in Iran were going to get a much larger, less, less sizable part of the pie. And that's what, then they didn't want to do that. They didn't want to settle for that. No. Hi there. I want to tell you about a podcast I know you're going to love. It's called The Dead Files from Travel Channel. On The Dead Files, Amy Allen and Steve DeShavi investigate the paranormal activity haunting real people and homes across the United States. Amy and Steve come from totally different perspectives when they investigate. Amy's a medium. She sees and speaks to dead people and uses this skill to find out why someone might be haunting a place. Steve is a retired homicide detective. He tackles the case from the other end of the spectrum and uses public records and witness accounts to piece together the history of the haunted location. On every episode, Steve and Amy investigate a different, real haunting to help the family struggling with its effects. On one episode in Falconer, New York, a family keeps waking up with scratches and bruises. They also see a shadow figure lurking around their home. They call Amy and Steve to investigate. Amy uses her strength as a medium to understand who the presence is coming from and why it's so angry. Separately, Steve finds out the history of the house from the townspeople and in public records. He finds that several people who lived in this house died, which matches Amy's findings. At the end of the episode, Steve and Amy share their findings and make a recommendation on whether it's safe to stay in the house or time to get out. There are so many crazy stories on the dead files, and what's interesting about Amy and Steve is that they investigate the hauntings from two totally different perspectives. You listen to my podcast because you love tales of the paranormal, but if you want more... Listen to The Dead Files wherever you get your podcasts. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Flash okay. forward to Cuba. Flash forward to Cuba, 1959. And, 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 uh, you know, Batista, a horrible, horrible uh, dictator. And, uh, uh, I mean, even the, even the, the, uh, the Eisenhower administration recognized that, you know, this guy had to go. But, but, uh, Castro originally didn't come across as, unless he, you know, was, was just lying through his teeth, he didn't come across like a communist. I mean, he, again, he was a nationalist, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And in fact, the, um, the, uh, 
the White House and the State Department were rather kind of late in recognizing who he and Che Guevara really were. Now, in this particular case of Cuba, it's, it's, they, these guys were communists, okay? You know, they, Che Guevara, and they were at first nationalists when they got rid of Batista, but then they slowly gravitate, well, not really slowly, Che Guevara was really a communist from the get-go. It was Castro who, in about a year or two, turned into a communist. But this is, and I, this is what I talk about in my book, but that's because when he came to the United States, the powers that be in the State Department wanted him to go along with the World Bank and IMF stuff. Now, if anybody knows anything about the way the World Bank works and the International Monetary Fund, and I think um, if you've read that book by John Perkins, Confessions yes. of an Economic Hitman. I've had John on, yeah. Yeah, okay. Do you understand the way that works? The way that works is they get you so much in debt to them that they then go ahead and put an austerity program in effect in your country, which lowers the standard of living. For, for everybody. So when Castro got a load of this, you know, he understood that he was going to have to, A, get rid of the American imperialism inside of Cuba and form a kind of treaty with the Soviet Union. So he started nationalizing so that, cattle ranches. and Yeah, he started taking over. In the space of a year. And so in, 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 in a sense, he was forced into the Soviet uh, uh, into the Soviets, uh, into the arms of the Soviets. He had he had a little yeah, I, choice. I think I, I think you could make that argument. Although, like I said, in this case, I think you could say you know they, they were really more or less socialist or communist to begin with. But Castro, at least, was willing to talk to the United States. Okay. But Eisenhower I, I, and Dulles did not want to talk to him. And then when he started making these programs to confiscate. Uh, the American interests in Cuba and paying only what the book price was. That's an important part of my book. See, Castro was going to nationalize these, these properties at the book price. The problem was that these companies had all understated the value of their property to dodge taxes. Okay? So in other words, Castro was going to essentially Beat them at their own game. their own petard. Right, right. Knowing that they had lied about the value of the properties, he was going to go ahead and pay them the book value. So they didn't like that. <laughs> James D. Eugenio. <laughs> it was okay for them to cheat sure. the Cuban government, but it wasn't okay for the Cuban government to turn it around on them. James D. Eugenio, Destiny Betrayed, JFK Cuba and the Garrison Case. Okay, so we've sort of set the stage, albeit in a very hurried fashion. Uh, you know, the, the, the emergence of the United States as the superpower after Britain hands over that mantle post-Second World War. The emergence of the CIA and the national security state apparatus, which included uh, former high-ranking Nazi intelligence officials like Reinhard Galen. Uh, and... Then along comes Jack Kennedy, who ha was also, you know, very uh, anti uh, anti communist. I mean, he uh, in his in that Nixon debate, uh, you know, Nixon talked about the Democrats losing China, and and Kennedy shot back, "Well, you lost, you know, uh, an island just ninety miles offshore." Kennedy campaigned as a Cold War warrior. I think many people that don't know their history might be surprised by that. You obviously read my book, and you, you understand 
that Kennedy understood um, what he had to say in public, okay? And he also understood, because he was educated on this quite a long time ago, that the United States was doing some really bad things in the third world. And in the book, what I do is relate what I believe is probably the most the most important event in understanding who John Kennedy really was, was his trip to Southeast Asia in 1951, because he wanted he was planning on running for the Senate the next year, and so he understood he had to get educated about foreign policy. So he went to Southeast Asia and he landed in Saigon, and he deliberately ditched the French emissaries who were there to meet him, because he wanted to get the true picture of what was really happening. So he wandered around, you know, knocking on doors, you know, until the wee hours of the morning, finding, trying to find the best reporters and the people who had the best reputation in the State Department. And he finally meets a guy named Edmund Gullion. And you don't know who John Kennedy really was unless you understand this meeting, okay? Because... This literally changed Kennedy's whole perspective on communism in the third world, all right? Because he simply he asked him, he says, you know, can the French win the war? And Gullion says, the French will never win this war. Okay, and he says, well, why? He goes, the French will never win this war because this war is not about communism versus democracy. This war is a war of national liberation, okay? And Ho Chi Minh had galvanized the imaginations and the hearts and minds of so many young men throughout Vietnam that they were willing to die rather than go back under French colonialism. All right? And the French could never win that kind of war. They could never win a war of attrition because they would lose the support of the home front. They would never be able to convince the average Parisian that it was worth it to go into the jungles of South Vietnam, you know, and fight against these people who only wanted their country to be free. So, so let's talk about uh, Cuba for a moment, James, and what happened just before Jack came to office, the, 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 uh, the Bay of Pigs invasion that was planned during the Eisenhower years. What was that all about? By the end of 1959, in the early part of 1960, Eisenhower had a series of meetings in the White House. These were interagency meetings, and which included the State Department, the CIA, the White House, the representatives from the American Embassy in Havana, etc. And they decided that there was no living with Castro. So the embargo went on against Cuba, and they began to plan a series of exfiltration and infiltration operations to destabilize Cuba, that is to recruit people who did not like Castro coming into the United States. And they also began to plan paramilitary action, which was supposed to culminate in an invasion of Cuba. Eisenhower wanted the political arm of what, was, what he imagined was going to be this new government established very strongly in exile Okay, before he went ahead and gave the okay to any kind of invasion. All right, well, this was not done. Okay, that part was not done. All right, and the action officer 
in the White House for the what was going to be this invasion was Richard Nixon. Okay, now Nixon had always planned that the invasion was going to happen before the election, and he was going to ride this, you know, to victory. All right. Well, it didn't happen because Eisenhower didn't okay it. All right. So, to everybody's shock and surprise, Kennedy wins this very narrow victory by about 100,000 votes in the election. All right. And so now, now, this culminating project of Eisenhower's plan, the so-called Bay of Pigs invasion, is now in Kennedy's administration. Okay. Now, and this, by the way, I really believe, I think this is chapter three of my books, and it's called Bay of Pigs, Kennedy versus Dulles. I'm very, very proud of this chapter because I really don't think that anybody has done a better job in a short version of summarizing the Bay of Pigs invasion and how it, how it went down, how it was planned, how it led to this falling out between Kennedy and the CIA, and especially between Dulles and Kennedy, in a short version as I have. There's been a lot of stuff declassified on the Bay of Pigs, all right, and I used it in this chapter. To put this in a nutshell, I think I spend about 22 pages on it, you know, in the book. To put this in a nutshell, Dulles and Bissell, that is the two guys in the CIA, who were running the operation, understood from a very early date that Kennedy didn't really like it, okay? It really wasn't his cup of tea, all right? And Kennedy actually changed the operation. See, this is what happened. Once Kennedy took office, Bissell and Dussel, excuse me, Bissell and Dulles changed the operation from a commando type of infiltration operation to a large strike force kind of operation, all right? They didn't think the original plan was going to work, and the reason they didn't think it was going to work is because Castro had rounded up all the renegade people inside of Cuba by 1961. So there really wasn't anything for them to hook up with. So they changed it to a much larger operation, okay, that was going to be a strike force kind of thing that needed air support to succeed, all right? Well, they understood that Kennedy really didn't like this idea. He changed it once, okay? And they and there's, no, there's really no way around this. There's really no way around this. They lied to him about two very important points. They lied to him about the amount of air support that the operation was going to need, and they lied to him about the hope of going guerrilla if the strike force did not succeed at first. James D. Eugenio, Destiny Betrayed, JFK Cuba and the Garrison Case, a second edition which is really just a heavily revised edition 20 years after uh, it was first published. We're talking about the Bay of Pigs. Kennedy, from what I understand, tell me if I'm wrong, wasn't necessarily against overthrowing uh, Castro and replacing him, but he just didn't want American fingerprints on this operation. He didn't want it coming back, having it known that the U.S. was fomenting this. This is what he objected to. He did not want any kind of overt American presence involved. He believed that the United States did have the right to support dissident 
parts of foreign countries who were trying to overthrow communism. But he didn't believe that the United States itself should use its own forces in which to do this. Now, see, the, and this was the difference between Dulles and him. Okay, and that's why I call this chapter Kennedy versus Dulles. Okay, because Kennedy had this education from Edmund Gullion. You know, he was sensitive to what the United States had done in the Third World, where Dulles just didn't care. You know, it didn't matter to him if it was really America overthrowing this regime. Okay, it didn't matter to him at all. And by the way, I should also say this, it didn't matter to Nixon either. Because when Kennedy called up Nixon when the operation was failing, he asked him what he would have done if it would have been him. He goes, well, I would have declared that we had a beachhead and I would have sent in the, the Navy. Well, see, the problem is the Cuban exiles never established a beachhead or anything close to it. So this ended up being a disaster all the way around. And when the CIA tried to get Kennedy to commit American air power, he wouldn't do it. Okay? And he wouldn't send in the Navy either. All right? To save the day. So when Castor was able to get his artillery and his tanks to the front, it essentially just crushed this 1,500 man force in a matter of less than 72 hours. Okay? And so Kennedy did something in the wake of the Bay of Pigs, that really today is kind of hard to believe, especially when you think back to what George W. Bush did, okay, in the wake of the 9-11 tragedy, all right, in which, to my knowledge, nobody got fired. Nobody in the FBI, nobody in the CIA got fired, and there should have been, all right. Well, Kennedy, there were two investigations of what happened. One in the CIA and one in the White House. The one in the CIA was done by Inspector General Lyman Kirkpatrick, and the one in the White House was done by General Maxwell Taylor. All right? The one in the White House, Bobby Kennedy was on. All right? And so I detail the results of both those investigations. And Kennedy came to see that he had essentially been duped, that Dulles knew that this operation was never going to succeed on its own. And he was banking that Kennedy, instead of going through this humiliation, both personal and national, okay, that he would go ahead and commit American forces, even though he had said like five days before the invasion in public that he wasn't going to do it. All right? So when Kennedy didn't do this, the operation collapsed, all right? And so Kennedy found out, through the results of both investigations, that he had been tricked, that Dulles and Bissell had this secret agenda. To what extent, Jim, so, do you think Kennedy's refusal to commit U.S. forces to the invasion, uh, to what extent did that seal his fate in Dallas? Oh, I think it's very important, because... At the end of this chapter, chapter three, you know, I go ahead and outline how Dulles hit back. Once Kennedy fired him over this, Dulles and Howard Hunt hit back at Kennedy in this famous article in Fortune magazine, where instead of, instead of admitting that they had tried to trick Kennedy, 
they tried to blame the failure for the operation on him by saying that he had canceled the so-called D-Day airstrikes. And that had blown the operation. And I'm, I, I don't know if you read this chapter, but I was very careful to show that there was no such thing as a D-Day airstrikes. That if there were going to be any D-Day airstrikes, that is, the dawn of the invasion, jet fighters were going to come in and knock out Castro's Air Force. Kennedy made it very clear that those were going to be launched from inside Cuba only if the exiles established a beachhead. He didn't want them flown from Central America. And he didn't want American pilots flying them. Okay? Well, since there was no beachhead, there were no D-Day airstrikes. But this is what they used against him to blame it on him. And they got this writer for Fortune magazine, Charles Murphy, who conferred with Howard Hunt and Alan Dulles, and then he ghost-wrote this article that was really supplied by Hunt and Dulles. And this is what then inflamed both the upper classes and the Cuban exiles into believing that it was really Kennedy who was at fault for this. And as I note at the end of the chapter, I don't think it's a coincidence that some of these Cubans ended up being in Dallas that day. Mm. Mm-hmm. All right, and one of them, Bernardo de Torres, was disguised as a reporter and reportedly had pictures of Kennedy's assassination in a safe deposit box that Life magazine wanted to pay him for, but he wouldn't give them to him. Or that Sergio Arcacha Smith had diagrams of the source system under Dealey Plaza, or David Phillips, who recruited a lot of these Cubans, on his deathbed, finally admitted to his brother that he was in Dallas that day. And Howard Hunt, as everyone knows mm-hmm. from Mark Lane's book, Plausible Denial, never could find an alibi for where he really was on November 22nd, 1963. Nor could so Richard I Nixon. Believe the Bay of Pigs is very important. Nor could Richard in, Nixon. In <laughs> I'm saying nor could Richard Nixon, James. I remember right, me being true. asked years, where were you? He, I don't he, he remember. Stories. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but, and, and after this fiasco of the Bay of Pigs, uh, there was, a uh, an exchange, uh, they, uh, Castro handed over, uh, some, 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 some prisoners in exchange for, the U.S. sent over baby formula and, and, and things that the, the Cubans were in dire need of. What, this was all now being perceived then that, at this point, that, what, Kennedy is soft on communism, he's pro-Castro. Is that how it was being played up by Dulles and the others? Well, see, number one, Kennedy had, if Kennedy was gonna get rid of Castro, he had the perfect opportunity to bad pigs. Number two, if he didn't want to do it then, he had another perfect opportunity to missile crisis in October of 1962, when everybody was telling him to go ahead and bomb and invade the island to get rid of these missiles. Okay? You know, well, he didn't do it then either. So instead, what did he do? Mongoose. As, as, well, Mongoose was, was, was ended by the missile crisis. Okay, Mongoose was this eight-month program of uh, infiltration and covert operations, okay, to kind of do a double-track system with Castro. All right, it was not very successful, as I outline in my book. You know, Lansdale was never able to get any results, okay? And then along came the missile crisis, 
And right after the missile crisis, Kennedy pulled the plug on Mongoose. I think it was November the 29th, okay, that, that he pulled the plug on Mongoose. Because he had made this deal with Castro, that, and then the Russians, that there would not be any more attacks on Cuba from mainland United States. So these operations were either cut off or they were moved into Central America. All right? And then, as you mentioned, during this prisoner exchange, which I think was in December of 1962, Kennedy gets word that Castro, because of his falling out with Khrushchev, Castro really didn't like the way Khrushchev negotiated over his head with Kennedy about the resolution of the missile crisis. Castro was ready to talk about getting some kind of dialogue going between the United States and Cuba headed for normalization of relations. So this is what began this famous back channel. Okay, so now, as you can see, in the space of three years, Kennedy has completely reversed the Eisenhower Dulles policy on Cuba. Now he's talking about negotiating with Castro to actually normalize relations with this communist. And these negotiations went on for months, and they were not really fully disclosed. I mean, John Donnell, who was the last guy, wrote two articles in the New Republic about the last leg of the negotiations. But it wasn't until the church committee interviewed William Atwood that, and he was the first guy who began to talk about to, to Castro about normalization through Carlos Lechuga, who was a Cuban ambassador in New York City. All right, he was the first guy to establish his back channel that we began to get the whole full picture. These negotiations went on for about 11 months, all right, through people like Atwood, through people like ABC reporter Lisa Howard, and the last leg was by John Donnell, the French uh, journalist who Atwood recommended. And they were actually talking about Atwood going down to Cuba, landing in Mexico City, all right, and then meeting somebody and flying into Cuba, all right, secretly, in order to begin the agenda, you know, going ahead and negotiating terms for a recognition of Cuba. Now, 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 really, let's really think about this, okay? Three years earlier, Eisenhower and Dulles had essentially declared war on Cuba. There was no living with Castro, okay? The CIA had various assassination plots to kill him, which I outline in the book, all right? Now, three years later, okay, Kennedy is actually talking about reversing that policy, now, as I write in the book, when Danielle arrived in Havana and he told Castro, Kennedy's last message, Castro was overjoyed. He said, finally comes an American president, you know, who has the interests, you know, of the working class people in mind. All right? Kennedy will now go down in history as the greatest president since Lincoln. And they spent three days together celebrating. And then, on November 22nd, 1963, Castro, they, they hear the news on the radio. Kennedy has been shot in Dallas. And Castro completely collapses. And he says, this is bad news. And he says this three times. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm not going to sugarcoat this. I need your help. I need your support. It takes a tremendous amount of time and energy delivering all of this content. I'm not just talking about Conspiracy Unlimited with three new episodes every week. There's also my weekly radio program, The Conspiracy Show. And at the moment, advertising revenue isn't nearly sufficient to keep this train going indefinitely. I have a small team of two incredible guys, Ryan and Albert, who volunteer their time. So, I'd like those of you who listen regularly to think about becoming official supporters. Check out our page on Patreon.com. Patreon.com forward slash The Conspiracy Show. Patreon.com forward slash The Conspiracy Show. There are three different tier levels, but you can give whatever you can on a monthly basis. Just figure out what Conspiracy Unlimited and The Conspiracy Show mean to you and give what you can. Depending on the tier level, you could qualify to participate in exclusive monthly online video chats with me or a chance to win Conspiracy Show and Conspiracy Unlimited and Rock and Roll Twilight Zone merch. Patreon.com forward slash The Conspiracy Show. Your help is urgently needed. The truth goes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Then, it is violently opposed. Finally, it is accepted as self-evident. Let me just read that again, what that means. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. JFK assassination researcher James Eugenio is here. I wanted to pick it up and, and concentrate now on, on Oswald. I think before, though, we talk about New Orleans and his time spent there. I mean, he was born there, of course, but he returned there, I guess, about the spring of 1963. Uh, let's just give people a sense of of who he was, uh, where he came from, and, and so forth, if we could. And as I mentioned, born in New Orleans. Can we pick it up maybe when, when he, uh, when he um, signs on uh, in the military and, and, I guess, does his basic training in San Diego and, and so forth? All right. Oswald, he's in Dallas when he goes ahead and he kind of sneaks into the Marine Corps. But right at the start, let me add something. If you've read my book, it sounds like you certainly have. Yes, yes. All right. What's really odd about this is that at around the same time that he's going to the Marine Corps, he tries to sell a classmate named Richard Garrett on the philosophy of communism for which Richard reported Oswald to the principal. The second interesting point is that on October 3rd, Oswald wrote a letter to the Socialist Party of America, and he said he was very interested in our youth league and like information on a branch in his region so he could join. And he signed a letter with, I'm a Marxist, I've been studying socialist principles for well over 15 months. I'm very interested in your organization. Now, what is so odd about this is that guys joining the Marine Corps usually aren't Marxists, okay? Especially at the <laughs> height of the Cold War. <laughs> socialist organizations, they don't try and sell their classmates on communism. 
All right, because of course the Marine Corps is usually considered the uh, the shock troops of any kind of attack that the United States military makes on another country. All right, sure. usually the first to go into action. So here we have this very hard to believe spectacle of this young man, right, um, going into the Marine Corps and writing letters to the Socialist Party of America. All right, now. Oswald does go into the Marine Corps. In the time in the Marine Corps, he's in three places. He's in the southeast quadrant of the United States, in places like Mississippi and Florida. He's also stationed in California, and another place is the Far East. And when he's in the southeast quadrant, what he's doing is getting training for his specialty, which is going to be uh, radar operation. But then he gets stationed in El Toro, California, and this is a step for him to go to Atsuki, right. Japan. Right. Now, what's so odd about Atsugi is that it's a CIA station. And out of Atsugi flew the U-2, which had just become operational. Right, right. Which, of course, was the high-altitude spy plane that the United States invested so much money in and in which it was supposed to get unbelievably clear pictures from 30,000 feet up, you know, with these terrific Polaroid lenses. And you couldn't send up a fighter to intercept it because it was flying at such a high no, altitude and too fast. not at the time they first went up. Right. No, no. What's also odd is that Oswald seems to follow the U-2 around in the Far East. Wherever the U-2 goes, Oswald and his detail goes. He was called Detachment C, a special technical unit that seems to be part of the U-2 program. Once Oswald goes into the service, it really does not seem that he's being groomed for the infantry because, as many authors have revealed, including myself, Oswald was not, well, to put it kindly, he was not a very good shot. And, in fact, he was kind of a joke when he went through basic training. The people kind of made fun of his terrible shooting ability. After he returns from the Far East, he comes back to Santa Ana. He takes part in a radar operation squadron nine. But now something very, very odd begins to happen. To me, and I think to most people, it's not explainable. He begins to start studying the Russian language. He subscribes to Pravda, you know, the big kind of New York Times of Russia at the time. You know, he starts to play Russian records. And this gets to be you know, so bizarre that his mates start calling him Oswaldogrich, you know. <laughs> now, as other people observed later, he actually takes a Russian test. As Jim Garrison so notably noted, you know, the Warren Commission tried to excuse this as saying that he only got half the questions right, you know, which, as Garrison said, kind of begs the question that most people wouldn't have got any questions right. Right, right, right. But later on, about 10 months later, he met a woman named Rosalind Quinn, who was actually being tutored in Russian because she was actually going to join the State Department. And one of his friends in the Marines set up this meeting so they could practice their Russian with each other. Well, Rosalind Quinn, after the meeting, said, that guy speaks as well in Russian as I do. And I was privately tutored for a year. 
you were talking about his incredible proficiency with the Russian language, but let me just back up for a second and ask you this, because, you know, if you look at his military record, uh, you know, before he, he lands in, uh, at Atsugi, which you've pointed out is a CIA base, um, he's got, uh, you know, he ends up shooting himself in the arm. Um, uh, at one point, I believe he has a, some sort of a breakdown. Um, he assaults, supposedly he assaults a superior. He's sentenced to the brig. I'm wondering whether these were sort of cover stories and, and to what extent, I mean, what kind of a security clearance did Oswald have when he was uh, attached to the 1st Marine Aircraft Wing? Well, that's that's been under a long time of debate, okay, because the CIA has never wanted to admit that Oswald had a secret clearance, all right? But over time, it's kind of been, you know, this has been chipped away at, and certain people who worked with Oswald, okay, like his commanding officer Donovan in the radar thing said he did have a clearance, okay? You know, he did have a clearance to look at some of these top secret documents. And most people now believe that this was information on the U-2, okay, which is very interesting because when we get to Russia, we'll see why it's so interesting. All right, when we get to Oswald's defection to Russia, we'll see why that's interesting. All right. Well, were they were they trying to to? I mean, again, going back to the uh, these run-ins he had, you know, assaulting his officer, uh, a superior officer. Well, against... it wasn't really an assault. He, I think, he poured a drink on the guy, right? Okay, but then there was in, then then I believe when he, when he was stationed in the Philippines for a short while, he had a, supposedly a complete. You know, breakdown and was sent back to Japan. Were these cover stories, or was was Oswald troubled? Well, there does seem to be a kind of mystery about where Oswald was for a certain period of time, because I've personally met someone who went to Santa Ana to do training in firearms and. When he went there, he said, why don't you go ahead and sleep here tonight? This is this Oswald guy who never seems to be here. Okay? And what many people believe is that these disappearances of Oswald were essentially kind of excuses for him to go ahead and get his training in the Russian language. Because when the Warren Commission convenes, they discover that they had a document that said Oswald had been at the Monterey School of Languages, which is um, in the middle of California, right, and is the the place to go in the military if you want to acquire mastery of another language. Because, look, anybody who knows anything about languages knows that, A, Russian is one of the most difficult languages there is to learn, all right? And number two, you can't really do it as fast as Oswald did it with just reading newspapers and listening to records. You have to have directed instruction to do it. So this is what many people believe was where when Oswald was not around, this is where he most likely was. 
acquiring this Russian language. And of course, they've right. already created the cover story of why, you know, he's going to defect because at a very early, you know, uh, years earlier, he's already talking about, you know, uh, being a Marxist and, and, uh, right. embracing socialism. So, I mean, obviously, that was, that was set up years in advance. Well, yeah, see, if, um, you wanted to start at the action when he goes in the Marine Corps. In my book, I try and explain that, in my opinion, the way that this started was with, through his association with David Ferry in the Civil Air Patrol in 1955. That far Ferry back. Ferry had already indoctrinated several of his cap cadets into the military. And I, this is what I think he did with Oswald. All right? Okay, so let's... Right, so now, let's begin to wind this down because there's two very interesting events that not too many people had written about, Okay. Um, and I think they're very important as Oswald now begins to decide to leave the Marine Corps and go to the Soviet Union. Number one is his application for the Albert, the so-called Albert Schweitzer College. In Switzerland, yeah. Right. Which is, if you remember from the book, this is a very inexplicable interlude that no one has ever really explored until we had this documentation declassified by the ARB, all right, because when, after Kennedy's assassination, when the Warren Commission and the FBI tried to find Albert Schweitzer College, which Oswald had sent away, you know, um, for information from, and after he, dis after Oswald went to Russia, his mother also wrote a letter to Hoover saying, I haven't heard from my son in weeks. The last time I, he wrote me, he said he was going to go to this college, Albert Schweitzer College. Well, how obscure was Albert Schweitzer College? First of all, the FBI didn't know where it was. Okay. Second of all, the FBI attachment in France didn't know where it was. Hmm. So then they had to refer it to the Swiss police, and guess what? They didn't know where it was, <laughs> even though it was in Switzerland. Right, right. Okay? It took them something like seven days to find Albert Schweitzer College. But yet, that leaves the question, how the heck did Oswald know about it in California? Exactly, exactly. You know? How on earth did he know about this college? Which, by the way, he never went to. Now, I go into the book about some very, very interesting stuff about Albert Schweitzer College because it very much resembles, if you read this, if you read what I wrote about it, it very much resembles some kind of CIA cover operation because it doesn't come off to anybody who reads about it as a legitimate college. Plus, it shut down after Kennedy's assassination. Interesting. All yes, right. yes. All right. Now, the other thing is Oswald's early leave from the Marine Corps. Oswald only had, I think, about something like eight months to go before his enlistment period was up. But he mysteriously takes a hardship discharge. Yeah, his mother was injured, supposedly. His mother was injured, right? <laughs> well, do you, do you remember what the injury was? Uh... No, I can't... Um, I a, a candy jar dropped on her foot. Oh. <laughs> okay. 
Okay. I, wait a second. I think it might have been her nose. I, 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 did, I should get this right. I think it might have been her nose. All right. And so, therefore, this event went ahead and ticked off a series of applications to the Red Cross in which Oswald went ahead and was dismissed early from the Marine Corps. The House Select Committee on Assassinations did some research on previous hardship discharges. You know, because you had to have an application. It had to be reviewed by a board, etc. They had to make sure you just weren't making something up because you just wanted to get out of the Marine Corps. Yeah, he got his in like two weeks. He got, the average length of time it took to get a hardship discharge was three to six months. Yeah. Okay. Well, Oswald's took 11 days. That's right, August. Oswald's took yeah. 11 days. August 1759. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So he now gets out early, all right, and what does he do? Does he go back and tend his mother? Well, he was only back in Fort Worth or something like at his mom's for like a day and a half, okay? He actually took one day off to visit his mother, or his brother, who did not was not living with his mother, all right? So clearly... It seems to most people that this hardship discharge was designed to get Oswald out of the service early because he was never meant to be an infantry guy. He was always meant to be part of what, as we're going to see, this fake defector program. Yeah, he gets okay. out and immediately applies for a passport, and he's he, and he now he's busying himself so that he can get over to Russia. Right. And so he goes ahead, he goes down to New Orleans, all right, he then gets on this ship called the Marion Likes, all right, a freighter. He goes over to um, Southampton, okay, in England, all right, and from there he went. He goes ahead to Helsinki. Now, if you remember what I wrote in the book, there's a really interesting thing that help, happens. Well, there's more than one that help, happens to him in Helsinki, Finland. All right, here's this guy who's supposed to have something like $203 in his bank account. Yeah, he moves to the Klaus Kirky Hotel. <laughs> he got $203 in his bank account. And where did he check into? He checks into first the Hotel Tony. Right, right. Which, I, I know a guy who's been there. Yeah, it's pretty this Tony. This kind of hotel that if Donald Trump was going to Helsinki, he would stay there. Yeah. It's like a five-star hotel. It shouldn't be the Tony. It should be the Tony Hotel. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the Savoy in London. All right? So here's this impoverished Marine going into this five-star hotel with granite floors, glass walls, an observation tower. It used to have its own newspaper. All right? Now, somebody must have told them, uh, Lee, uh, Let's uh, let's cover this up a little bit. Why don't you get out of that place? So what does he do? He goes to the, the Klaus Kirky Hotel, which is about three blocks away, which is not quite a five-star. It's probably a four-star. Yeah, still pretty nice. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So here's the question. Here's a guy who should be staying at the Express Holiday Inn, and he's, he's staying at the two best hotels in Helsinki. All right? Why? How? All right. So then he gets a visa into the Soviet Union in something like a couple of days. All right. And now he's finally 
into Russia, which is where it looks like he's always wanted to be. Okay, and there's been a series, as I describe in the book, there's been a series of American so-called defectors who very oddly had gone, there hadn't been any in something like 15 years. Well, at the time Mosul goes over, he's like the third or fourth in like the last 18 months. Okay, so clearly what's happening is that the United States is sending over, you know, these men who have been from the military who've been trained to act as disaffected people, you know, and then go to Russia as undercover spies. All right. Now, the Russians, of course, don't believe this. You know, they don't believe that Oswald is a, is a true communist. And I explain in the book, there was all kinds of surveillance on Oswald, you know, both human intelligence and uh, electronic surveillance, you know, and also from some of his speeches that he gave, you know, and even... The, the diplomat at the at the American embassy, Richard Snyder, is obviously knows that Oswald is not a real defector because he makes sure that he doesn't sign a certain document so that he will not use, lose his American citizenship. All right? So Oswald then is stored up at this Metropole Hotel, and it takes the KGB a few days to figure out what they're going to do with them. And they send in the Minsk, about 400 miles, I think, eastward, no, westward of Moscow. And he works in this radio factory. All right? And he meets some people there. The KGB guy in Minsk has a human net around him, okay, because they strongly suspect he's some kind of intelligence agent. All right? And they also have electronic surveillance on him because he actually, if you remember the story in the book, his friend Ernst Titovitz says they fished out some kind of recording device out of his sink one day. Right, right. Right? He then meets Marina Oswald. Okay? He then meets Marina Oswald at this dance. And Marina Oswald, unbelievably, had also met Webster, who was another defector, okay, in Russia. You mentioned Robert E. Webster who uh, was working over there supposedly setting up some sort of a trade display for RAND Corporation, which kind of right. has an, an interesting connection with the CIA. Both of the, I think the, the, the CEO of RAND uh, they served in the OSS, which was the forerunner of the CIA. Right, right. And uh, so uh, Oswald uh, and Webster knew each other. Mar uh, Marina had met... Uh, Mar well, Oswald and Webster knew of each other. Ah, okay. I don't think they actually knew each other. But but, but Marina, Marina had met, yeah. actually knew both of them. But the thing is... And she, and she confused them, by the way, ah. when she left. She confused okay. them. She said she met Oswald at some science fair, which is... That's where she met Webster. Right, right. Okay. Now, when, but now, the interesting thing about Webster... Russia, and we're getting ready to do that now. Yeah, yes. There's one thing we can't ignore. When Oswald went to the Soviet Union, the information comes back to the FBI, comes back to the United States Navy, and is filed very cleanly and logically almost within 24 hours of them getting the information. But when it comes to the CIA... It goes into what John Newman, a military intelligence analyst, has written, is a black hole. For about 30 days, this information about Oswald is lost. 
at the CIA. There's no tracing on where it's going or why. Then when it finally does get filed, okay, it gets filed in the wrong place, the Office of Security, all right, which is one of the James Angleton's domains, the counterintelligence chief, all right. And also, if you can believe it, something even to me even more startling happens. The CIA does not open up a 201 file on Oswald. Now, what does that mean? The 201 file is the most common file the CIA has on almost, well, not almost everybody, but most of the people that opens up files, they open up a 201 file, which is just an, an information file on people who might be of interest to them. Here you have a defector leaving the Marine Corps early, saying he's going to Albert Schweitzer College, which he doesn't go to, all right, then going to Helsinki, staying at this Hotel Tourney, staying at the Kirky, and then crossing over into Russia. And this is not important enough for the CIA to open up a 201 file. Interesting, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry, I don't believe it. But he does make the mail intercept program. In other words, the CIA goes ahead and starts breaking into his mail. Now, the 201 files are in tens of thousands of people. The mail intercept program was only something like 300 people. So why is Oswald not important enough to get a 201 file? But he is important enough to get his mail intercepted. See, this is something the CIA has never explained. All right, so then Oswald then, he and Marina marry in, I think, something like, talk about a whirlwind romance. I think it, the whole thing took about five weeks from when they first met. All right? And then Oswald is granted permission to leave Russia with this Soviet national who has ties to the Communist Party and whose uncle, who was acting more or less as a stepfather, is part of the equivalent of the Soviet Union's FBI. Again, very, very odd. Because when the Warren Commission was investigating this, they said this was very, very unusual. It sometimes took a year for a Soviet, a Soviet national to meet their spouse outside the country, okay, to get, to get through customs, all right? But here it happened in just a matter of months. You know? Yeah, there's definitely a, 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 a pattern here with Oswald. Uh, right. let me, let He's me a just... very unusual person. Then he comes back to the United States. The CIA always denied that they debriefed him, but now we have some pretty good evidence that he was probably debriefed in Amsterdam on the way back. All right. And then, he, of course, he comes back to Texas, and who does he hook up with? This is the beginning of a very strange relationship between the supposed impoverished former Marine and his wife and the cosmopolitan, highfalutin, very cultured oil geologist named George DeMorne Show. Let, let me just back up. Before he defects and is in, or, or comes back, to, rather, to the United States, and he's in Russia, in May of 1960, of course, the U-2, a flight which is piloted by Francis Gary Powers, is shot down over the over Russia, uh, and 
it's interesting because, of course, that coincides with the time when Oswald was there. And as you had pointed out earlier, uh, he was, uh, you know, moving around in his, in, during his career with the Marines, sort of seemingly following the U-2. Uh, so what is the connection then, James, between Francis Gary Powers being shot down in the U-2 in Russia while Oswald is there? Well, Powers actually thought that Oswald was part of him being shot down. Because when Oswald came over, he said, and he said this to the American embassy, which, of course, the Soviets had had surveillance listening devices in, that I have some very secret information that I would like to convey. Now, the only secret information Oswald had, of course, was about the U-2. The only thing that could be of value to the Soviet Union. So many people thought that he was dangling this information for the Russians to take him up on. All right? But there's no real evidence that he actually did this. But when Donovan, his commanding officer, testified before the Warren Commission, when he came out, he said, I wanted to start telling them about what Oswald knew about the U-2, but they never asked me any questions. And this is really one of the most puzzling things about this whole, because there isn't any evidence that the CIA at the time did what they call a damage control assessment after the U-2 was shot down. In other words, how did the Russians shoot it down? Did Oswald give them the information? There was nothing like that done. There was only a very mild kind of investigation at the time of the Warren Commission, which most of Oswald's buddies thought was a kind of CYA operation. In other words, talk to a couple of people and just say, well, see, we did investigate it, whether or not it could have been Oswald. And, of course, right. the result of that, the, the embarrassment, of course, when, when Eisenhower had to admit it was a spy, a U.S. spy plane, was it scuttled uh, a meeting, a summit meeting, between Eisenhower and Khrushchev, which could have led to some uh, easing or, or thawing in the Cold War. Yeah, see, there's no doubt about that, because... Um, there's a big debate about whether or not there was supposed to be a hiatus about U-2 flights when Eisenhower was leading up to this big summit meeting in Paris because Eisenhower really did have some strong ambitions to get something accomplished at this summit meeting, all right? Well, needless to say, when the news comes in that the U-2 is shot down, this more or less scuttles the summit meeting. Khrushchev has a lot of leverage now over at Eisenhower, and he wants Eisenhower to make an announcement about who authorized this U-2 shoot-down and why. You know, like, like well, it's not the shoot-down, but the actual flight. You know, and why did they do it? Well, Eisenhower wasn't going to do that. So Khrushchev got all huffy and puffy, and he left. All right? And leaves Eisenhower high and dry. Now... Some people believe that it might have been this incident that caused Eisenhower to make his famous military-industrial complex speech. Exactly. You, you know what I'm talking about, right? Of course. I mean, we play it on the show all the time. Yeah. I mean, if I'm a me- if I'm you know General Electric or or one of these defense contractors, I'm clapping furiously now that that the Cold War summit has been called off because that's not going to be good for business. Right. And so a lot of people believe that it might have been this incident that caused him to make that speech, okay, warning 
about the impending might of the military-industrial state. It's a very, very interesting theory. Let's put it this way. I, I think it's a very and one of the most intriguing things that there is to know about Oswald, you know, as he's about to leave the Soviet Union. So, is it possible then, James, uh, that that was the reason? That was the sole reason that Oswald was first set up to look like a, uh, a, a socialist, a communist, a Marxist, whatever you want to call him. Uh, and that was the reason that his defection to Russia, that the, the path seemed to be cleared to get him over there to learn Russian. Uh, he's, he's equipped with all this knowledge, secret knowledge about the U-2. That was the raison d'etre for getting him into the, into the Soviet Union. Well, it, it might have been a very important part of it because another important part of this story is that the U-2 was beginning to be phased out at the time Oswald leaves the Soviet Union. They were already planning on a much faster plane, the SR-71. It was actually on the books. All right? So they might have thought about it this way. Well, let's go ahead and give the secret away because we've got this other plane coming in and we'll have a chance to scuttle Eisenhower's you know, dream of detente, of establishing detente, okay, in the 60s. So that's so it's a possibility, you know. See, Oswald is such a complex character, you know, that it's very hard to figure out definitively who the guy is and why he's doing these things. And by the way, we haven't even gotten to New Orleans yet. No, no. We, I mean, the kind of the stuff the guy does there is, you know, I mean, I mean, talk about bizarre. That's that's going to be part three. We, uh, but I oh, okay, we're gonna we're gonna delay that to part three. Okay. Absolutely, yes. We'll uh, okay. listen. We're gonna we're All gonna right. take this we're series. We're gonna talk about George Mornschild. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about Mornschild, uh, Mornschild, and uh, now, yeah, he, as you say, here is this very wealthy uh, oil guy uh, who suddenly befriends Marina and and um, Oswald and introduces them to members of the Russian community. But why? What they had nothing in common. Right. It's one of the more puzzling relationships that, um, if you study Oswald's life, it's really kind of not explainable. Because the Morinchild's family comes from Russia. They had very strong interests in the Nobel oil fields, okay, in, in Russia, right? And he was part of the white Russian community. Yeah, they... Which they wanted they, to they... overthrow the communist dictatorship. Of course. And bring back the czar. Yeah. So what the heck is he doing associating with this supposed communist? Later on, before he died, de Morinchild revealed that left to his own devices, he would have never befriended Oswald. You know, he was told to uh, meet Oswald through his CIA uh, liaison in Dallas, a guy named J. Walton Moore, all right? And... He, they, they become rather close friends for several months. They talk, they eat, they spend time with each other's families. De Morinchild introduces him to the rest of the white Russian community, who they become, he becomes quite close with. And ultimately, what I believe De Morinchild's mission was, he introduces them to Ruth and Michael Payne. And then as De Morinchild begins to leave in the spring of 1963, Ruth and Michael Payne essentially fill the vacuum, and they become the best friends of Lee and Marina Oswald. And these are uh, uh, Michael Payne is an executive with Bell Helicopter. Right. He's he's uh, he has a, a very high security clearance 
at Bell Helicopter in Dallas-Fort Worth, which leaves the question, what was he doing with the wife of a communist staying in his house? Okay, <laughs> which is what's going to happen, right? And, okay, and, 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 when, and who's Michael Payne's boss? Comes this... back from New Orleans, Ruth Payne has her living with them in their house. And this guy's got a top security clearance at Bell Helicopter with the wife of a communist, and the communists actually staying there on weekends. And last week we started, we started the show talking about how the OSS recruited some top Nazis. Uh, you know, we talked about Reinhard Galen, but another one comes over and ends up running Bell Helicopter and is, I guess, Michael Payne's boss, right? Walter Dornberger. Yeah. Right. That's Operation Paperclip. And Dornberger is a big wheel at Bell Helicopter. At, 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 by the way, at, at around this time, you know. So it's, it's very, very interesting, these associations, when you begin to examine them. And in, when we talk about Ruth and Michael Payne, we will see that they go way back in time and space to the Boston Brahmins families who essentially founded this country. Yeah, the Blue Bloods of America. Right, the Cabots and the Forbes family. You know, from, you know, that go way, you're talking three centuries. Right, right. Okay. And this was covered up so beautifully by the Warren Commission, that who Ruth and Michael Payne really were, that it's, it was masterful how they did it. You would never get it from just looking in the Warren Report. You had to do some really serious research. I mean, at the time of the assassination, Michael Payne is on a trust fund from the Cabot family. Okay? Mm. That's, he's living largely off two trust funds, from the Cabot and the Forbes family. We're talking about the unelected oligarchs uh, who, who run America. Right. These people actually looked down on the Kennedys because the Kennedys were like nouveau rich. Right. Okay, whereas they had their money from way, way back, you know, two, three hundred years ago, you know, and they controlled, they were in on all of these, you know, they worked for the State Department, they were in the Council on Foreign Relations, you know, and they, they really essentially, you know, kind of were behind the scenes power of running America. They were the okay. industrial, the military industrial complex. Right. And Michael and Ruth Payne, if you read my book, and this is one of the parts of the book that I'm very proud of, were disguised as these, this Quaker Good Samaritan couple. But as we begin to explore what they're doing, they really appear to be extensions of this Eastern establishment in Texas. And that's what they appear to be doing there. Which is interesting as well, because the Bush family, and we'll get into this uh, as, as this series unfolds, the Bush family, Eastern establishment, transplanted right. in Texas as well. Right. You can, you can say that that's another example of this. Yeah. Listen, we're going you know, to leave it. From back east, you know, then you know, they go to Texas, and George H.W. Bush becomes a big wheel in dresser industries. All right, that concludes part one of my two-part conversation with JFK assassination researcher James D. Eugenio. Now, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back with a quick note on what's coming up next. Hey, did you know I have a YouTube channel? All of my weekly radio programs, The Conspiracy Show, are there. Often, we live stream with video. Check it out, The Conspiracy Show YouTube channel. You can watch the live stream of the radio program most weeks and join in on the conversation by entering the live chat room. Check out The Conspiracy Show, my weekly radio program on the YouTube channel. 
Live streams happen Sunday nights at 11 p.m. Eastern. The Conspiracy Show on YouTube. And don't forget to hit the red subscribe button. Coming up next time, more of my conversation with JFK assassination researcher Jim DiEugenio. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. <laughs>